Hello, and welcome to the Spectator PM podcast. I'm Luther Abel, joined as always by the wonderful Aubrey. Aubrey, how are you doing today? Doing well. Glad to be back in the U.S. So <laughs> I just got back from a trip from Rome and Assisi um, over Thanksgiving. So it's pretty fantastic trip. I wrote about it in the newsletter. Um, yeah. So what do you... Uh, appreciate even more about Rome now having visited? Um, oh, I think a lot of things. I didn't, I don't think I had a good feel for the layout of Rome, which is um, fairly important as far as like, you know, literature and um, like, if, like as you're reading, like, I don't know, the Roman martyrology or whatever about the saints or even the Bible. Um, towards the end of the acts, like getting a feel for how Rome actually like was situated and laid out is, I feel like being there is like necessary for them. <laughs> Cause I didn't realize how far away like the Vatican is from like where the forum and the Senate would have been. It's like a 30 minute walk. It's actually really, really far um, as far as the Romans were concerned or like the Appian way is like way out there. <laughs> Like, oh, I I don't know why my brain like smooshed everything together. Yeah, no, Rome is a large city. I'm like, ah, okay. <laughs> so Yeah, I feel like we make um as described Plato's Republic, these tiny city states in our minds for places, especially that we haven't visited. Like Jerusalem yeah. for me just doesn't have any living quarters. It's just <laughs> all of the major exhibits or places you'd want to visit. And then I don't know where the people live. It doesn't, it doesn't fit in one, one's brain. And I suppose, yeah, Rome is very much the same way. You said there were so many churches that they aren't even, most of them aren't even open most of the time. There's how A many? A lot of them again? aren't. I don't know if it's most, uh, there are, the number that we were given on the tour thing that I went on um, was 985. There may be a few, slightly fewer or slightly more. What that essentially means, though, is that you literally will have churches like, you know, I don't know, 800 feet from each other or like corner to corner or across the street facing each other. You're like, oh, this is a little, maybe a little over the top. I'm like, how are you going to staff all these churches? I think, though, the concern when the churches were built wasn't the staffing. It was that the churches are built to commemorate something, um, some event, some, you know, saint. And so it the church is a monument just as much as it is a place of worship, which is why you end up reading 985. Sure. And people, uh, worshipers, would move around churches, correct? It isn't like um, I'm a member of Appleton Alliance Church and that's where I go every Sunday. Um, but was, was there more movement? People had, people probably had parish churches. Um, like some of the churches, like uh, for instance, the Institute of Christ the King has a small basilica right across from the river from the Castle San Angelo. And it's essentially like, it's an oval shaped church and all along the oval, there are probably six or seven different altars. Um, and there's not a lot of space for like the congregants to be, because I don't think the church was ever intended for 
like a parish use. It was intended as a chapel for priests because um, priests, I think beginning in like the 400s or 500s, have had to say like a mass every single day. And so they all need spaces for that mass. And um, when you're in Rome, there are a lot of priests and therefore you need a lot of altars. Um, so that that was part, that was one interesting thing. And also um, people seem to use altars to commemorate like certain saints. So like mm. a saint's relics would be within the altar. Um, the older canon law requires that you say mass over the bones of a saint. So it's handy if you've got all of them right there or most of them. That is convenient. Yes. <laughs> huh. So just one of the like interesting Catholic things. And I mean, this is something I talked about in the newsletter is like just the sheer number of saints relics in Rome is absolutely mind boggling. Like I live 45 minutes from Maria Stein, which is the second biggest reliquary in the United States. And it's this tiny little chapel with like little reliquaries of, I think, I don't know how many is easily in the hundreds of different relics that were sent to the US to preserve them during World War II and they never got sent back, um, mostly because those churches were destroyed. <laughs> hmm. um, anyway, so I, like I grew up doing field trips there. I like, I was used to the idea of relics, but then you go to Rome and you're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> so many more relics <laughs> all over the place. I'm trying to think of what a Protestant relic would look like. It'd be like the, <laughs> the pins for Awana game night. And if you grew up evangelical, you know what that is. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, we don't have enough relics. That's something we need to consider at our next function, next potluck. That'll, yeah. that'll come up. Uh, awesome. Well, I'm glad you're back safe and that it was... Um, an enlightening trip. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what's going on in Israel as well? Uh, what's the latest from there? I understand hostage exchanges are taking place. There have been some rockets fired uh, from Gaza, sort of technically breaking the ceasefire, but Israel st still has hostages at once. What, what is happening right now? Yeah, so it's a tough situation for Israel. They're definitely getting the short end of the stick compared to Hamas. Um, so I think it was right after Thanksgiving, the first hostage exchanges started, and it was supposed to be a ceasefire that lasted a few days. Um, a certain number of hostages were to be returned to Israel in return for prisoners and no rockets being fired. And then there was an, a clause about extending it. So we're, ex we've been extending it day by day for the last few days um, and trying to get, you know, women and children back from Hamas. And it's interesting. I expected there to be a lot more um, stories about, the hostages and their experience. And there really hasn't been a lot um, so far. There's been like little things that have come out. There's been family members speaking about the hostages. Um, yeah, that, that was something that was kind of interesting when I was looking into it a few days ago, just reading through different accounts. Um, I think the free press had interviewed somebody um, 
whose family was like whose family came back and there really wasn't there's not a lot to the interview <laughs> I'm like well that's that's interesting um yeah and I th if I were Israel and if I was a family member of a hostage Israel knows that the international press does not like them um yeah. which is yep. just such an indictment of the international press <laughs> but uh i i do credit israelis with kind of pushing the cameras away if if there are cameras because uh, yeah the last thing you want after being i'm sure brutalized and, and traumatized for what it's been a month almost two months at this point since the hostages were taken these are some broken people and giving them the space they need to hopefully recover in some capacity uh, I think is a is the right thing to do even if um, for messaging it would be useful to have those accounts I just I can't imagine going to someone who experienced that and saying well tell me how it was let's <laughs> let's chat over coffee <laughs> no uh i i just i i feel so for them um so well, thank you thank you for catching us up on that um now you and i have some beef that we've discussed in the past and this is this is christmas decorating for christmas i am a the day after Thanksgiving, things get downright Christmassy. We go get the tree. We go get the wreaths. I'm going over to Ace Hardware. They've got the best trees, $35. Beautiful, beautiful. The greatest. And <laughs> throw that in the back of the SUV, and it is it is up and in the house uh, already in November. Uh, my Christmas gnomes come out. You know, we're about it. But you disagree, Aubrey. What, um, yeah. What's the deal? <laughs> um, so some of this is probably how I was raised, but I I mean, Christmas technically does not start until December 25th, as I'm sure you are well aware. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, the, there's this whole like liturgical season that comes before Christmas. It's called Advent, also, as I'm sure you're aware. And I feel like, um, as time has passed and Christmas has gotten more commercialized, we've shortened that season of Advent and we've gotten rid of the like season of preparation and the preparatory process that comes with preparing for a very large feast. Um, as far as like American holidays are concerned, Christmas is definitely the largest feast we celebrate as a country. Um, and as such, I think it deserves more time to prepare, um, more time set aside, and Advent provides a great opportunity to do that. So I'm not saying don't pull out your Christmas tree or don't start decorating the day after Thanksgiving. Just take a little bit more time with it, you know, drag it out, enjoy the preparation process. Um, and this was something I talked about in the article I wrote about it earlier this week, um, is that we as... I mean, Christmas is a liturgical feast intrinsically, right? It's about the birth of Christ. We're supposed to be preparing our hearts for the coming of Christ into the world. 
Um, and part of preparation is that we have to, um, we have to physically prepare as well, spiritually prepare, because man is both flesh and spirit. And this is probably getting maybe a little too metaphysical for what's generally a fun conversation, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but at the same time, I think it's important that we match the spiritual preparation we're supposed to be doing with the physical preparation. And instead of jumping right into the Christmas season, take the time to get there. I think if you don't take the time to get there, you miss that we have a beautiful tradition, especially the Germans have a beautiful tradition of like Advent carols that um, have been lost to the American people just because you don't pay any attention to them. Or um, yeah, and instead you just end up like listening to Oh Holy Night all December and then by the time Christmas rolls around you're ready to like throw that song out <laughs> totally it's a, it's the worst nobody can do it well not nobody very few people can do it well <laughs> um okay. anyway that's my very long metaphysical explanation for why you should wait to prepare for Christmas um see for me and th this is partly coming from a Lutheran background uh, we maintain that Martin Luther really brought the Christmas tree into the Christmas tradition. Uh, so awesome. for us, it's a way to sort of set the table, uh, set the atmosphere. And I find that preparing the soul is best done next to a twinkling Christmas tree instead of waiting to get the twinkling Christmas tree. And I will say, I, I keep my Christmas tree up all through the Chris, the 12 days of Christmas. I mean, that thing is just a permanent fixture in the house at the end of things. Uh, it's a little dry, but you know, the, the thing about Christmas is that you need to take on, you know, some of the dangers of flames, uh, to, to prepare one's heart, at least it seems to me. Uh, LED bulbs have reduced the chances of that. So, you know, we're in a safer place. Thank you, capitalism, for that one. Where um, we don't have to hang candles off our trees anymore. Uh, but I just, I, I don't know how one prepares without a Christmas tree. And I, I think mean, that's really what it comes tree. down no, to no is- No decorated yet. Oh, well, I don't, I don't really decorate. That's kind of like a lady job. Uh, I, I bring the boxes. So now up. you're blaming this on your wife. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm just saying we each have a role in the Christmas season. And so I go out. It's, it's kind of, uh, you know, she forages for the ornaments and I go hunt the great beast that is the um, Fraser fur. So I bring it in and I show her, ah, look at this mighty prize that I won <laughs> by going and exchanging lucre for tree. And then I bring it in there, I plant it there. And, you know, it's like the moon landing sort of, uh, but Considerably less, but uh, yeah. And then you can also repeat it every year. So yes. And then I, I bring up the boxes and then she has the joy of, of decorating it and bringing out all these ornaments that she's collected over the years. And so it's a, it's a bonding thing, um, uh, as well, but I actually wrote a, a magazine piece last year about 
the Christmas tree and why I think it's so important for having on December 1st. So I'll link that below because <laughs> I don't think I'm, I'm really conveying just how much it means to me. Um, so yeah, that's Christmas. Uh, now, where do you land on the war on Christmas? I, th I think it's sort of amusing um, in that I don't expect secular people to celebrate Christmas. And I don't ex expect secular corporations to celebrate Christmas for me. Like, it, it's kind of like my view on uh, the state's involvement in marriage is like, it's a certificate, but it doesn't, there, there's no spiritual attachment or requirement there. It's just a, a piece of paper from the state. The important thing is going before God and one's family and saying, I take this woman and so on and so forth. That's where I land on, <clears throat> on Christmas. I don't need anyone to tell me it's Christmas or that it's worth celebrating. It should be known to yourself and an expectation of one's faith to celebrate it. Uh, Starbucks cups do not need to tell me it's that time. Uh, but I don't know, maybe I'm a reactionary to reactionaries. What do you think, Aubrey? <laughs> I, I think that, I mean, I, I don't go to Starbucks, but I, I enjoy like the, the Christmas traditions of certain corporations. At the same time, I think it has led to the fact, or I don't know if it's from the fact that society has removed the religious aspect of Christmas or if it's a contributing factor. Um, it's it, kind of like the question of the chicken and the egg, like which comes first, I, who knows. Um, but I think, I think in some ways, like approaching corporate Christmas is uh, like, it's unavoidable. You're, you have to participate in it. Um, the kids expect gifts, whether or not <laughs> you want to give them gifts <laughs> or you want to, you know, uh, participate in the more like transactional aspects of Christmas at the same time you do have to make sure, and my parents did a great job of this, make sure that, you know, Christmas is still a lot more about the spiritual side of it, you know, Christ mm -hmm. coming into the world. I mean, the way we did that um, was that we don't, I'm like, there is no presence on Christmas morning. That's not Christmas morning. We ended up going, my mom's a choir director. So we just went to all of the Christmas masses, like all in a row. So we did the midnight and then we were up in the morning and we did the 1030 and we got home, we made brunch. It was about family. We had to clean and then we got to open gifts. Mm. Um, and I think part of that like delay um, really helps. I know other families would delay, they would have 12 gifts for every kid and then they would set them up. So it was on day one, you got one gift. Day two, you got the next gift. So you went all the way through the 12 days of Christmas. Um, my parents never did that. They had 10. That's a lot of gifts. <laughs> <laughs> That's insane. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So. You'd have to have like a warehouse just to keep it all. To It'd store be, the gifts. Yeah, yeah. competing I mean, with, with Amazon. Uh, 
I, a tradition that we picked up was uh, St. Nick's, where we would have our mm-hmm. gift opening on the first weekend of December. And so everything after that was celebrate Christ's birth and very little uh, about gift giving. And also my parents were like, yeah, you get two gifts and a stocking. That's it. Uh, you know what you're getting as far as numbers. So don't get your hopes up about anything else. This is the amount. And I think there has been some pushback in recent years about sort of limiting uh, the amount of gifts because growing up in the 90s, I recall there being just some ridiculous outlays um, by some other kids' parents that I don't see replicated as much now, uh, which I'm grateful for. yeah because if your kid is getting tired of opening gifts it probably means you got too many uh and it's more about the parents satisfaction or even pride in just providing that many gifts and showing it off for the month of december uh with people coming through uh but you know that's the cynic in me Um, (laughs) but i i have very fond memories of reading out of Luke on uh, Christmas Eve and then the morning of um, the the account of Christ's birth and uh, taking more time to gather as a family, attend church, of course. And I really want to do caroling this year. You mentioned caroling. Oh, and I, think, I love caroling. Yeah, I think I want to get some family together and uh, go out to sort of our older acquaintances, uh, especially the ones who have been really homebound since COVID. It's interesting how, and depressing, how especially older people have really taken to their homes and refused to go out after COVID. And it's it's understandable, one, scary, two, you just kind of get used to loneliness at a certain point. Um, but witnessing to those people, a recommendation to the, to the listeners, all several of you, please think about it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so speaking of, um, Christmas traditions, um, Henry Kissinger, uh, passed, (laughs) has nothing to do with Christmas, (laughs) uh, Henry Kissinger recently passed and, it was interesting going to read read the comments of our um, memoriam piece regarding him because there are a lot of people who just hate the guy's guts, and then there are others who acknowledge uh, whatever faults the man might have had while still saying the U.S. is better for having had him uh, in a leadership position than not. And so uh, James McGee wrote for us, and uh, Jim comes from a background similar to Kissinger in the sort of foreign policy sector. Uh, and I guess all I'll say for Kissinger is growing up, escaping the Holocaust, uh, serving in World War II, and recognizing that there are powers in the world that cannot understand anything besides hard force like that's uh, that's all they know 
And there are brutal regimes that the only way you're stopping them is through kinetics uh, and explosives. And that, um, that's a language that Kissinger knew uh, and spoke fluently. And so I'm grateful that he existed. Um, and I guess I, my only regret is that he didn't have <clears throat> someone who was a little more cautious to counsel him who he respected enough to moderate some of his choices. Uh, but again, it's another, uh, the Teddy Roosevelt about the man in the ring. Uh, when you're making decisions that you think will protect U.S. interests, you don't know those outcomes until they occur. Uh, and so you talk about Cambodia and other places in Southeast Asia. And um, I'm glad it wasn't me who had to make those decisions. I'll put it that way. And I'm glad, especially as we look at figures like Joe Biden and the Jimmy Carters of the world, who are so soft that they allowed these terrible regimes to build strength, to grow, um, that there are other men like a Kissinger, like a Reagan, like, yeah, we're not, we're not going to allow that. It stops. Um, and it's going to be painful because stopping murderers <laughs> takes force uh so i guess that's where i land on on kissinger um aubrey anything you like to say i yeah not really um not i don't really have a lot to add to that i feel like um I, you were saying as you were saying before the show notes or well while we were talking about what to talk about it's always a fun conversation um, there's definitely been a movement to just condemn the man and everything he did. And I think those movements lose track of the fact that when you're in the seat of power, making those types of decisions is extremely difficult. You don't have 2020 vision, um, and you make mistakes and make bad choices. It doesn't mean you're a bad guy. Um, at the same time, I, I, um, saw among some conservatives a tendency to react 100% to that and like adopt Kissinger as their own and be like, no, he was actually a great, and without recognizing that he made mistakes um, as every man does. And I think that there's a good balance to strike there that you have to strike there to be honest about his legacy. But at the same time, like he also did just die, so you can't really, like it's it's too soon to dance on the guy's grave give it you know 50 100 years because when it comes down to it we actually haven't seen you know the way all of his decisions are going to play out in the long run like we can't totally figure out his legacy just yet it takes years for that i mean we're, we're still the world is still processing things that happened during the cold war and the first half of the 20th century and that's before Kissinger was an active figure or in some cases even alive. So, yeah, I don't know. Patience and taking time and not saying, like, the first thing that pops into mind, I think, is an important thing for journalists, especially on both sides of the issue. Yeah. Agreed, Dad. Gummit. 
Let it be said. Uh, so some book recommendations. You said you were reading uh, Hilaire Bullock's uh, Free Press uh, on your flight. Could you give us uh, kind of a primer on what um, good old Bullocky boy was talking about? <laughs> yeah, so Hilaire Bullock is, he's an interesting figure. He was uh, early 20th century, late 19th century. He's a politician in England and uh, had a... Uh, he had a quick tongue and a quick wit. Um, he was half English, half French. And um, <laughs> so he's got these like short little like children's verses that are hilarious. They're, they're the best thing ever. Um, but this is one of his more serious works um, talking about the rise of independent journalism and its, its role as a reaction to the rise of like corporate media back in the early 20th century, um, which is really interesting to read because I felt like a lot of the things that he's complaining about, talking about um, conservatives in the 21st century can, you know, it, like, like it's like he's writing for us, but he's writing a century before us, which is so weird sometimes when you get that. Um, it, it's funny, like he was like, listing his recommendations and he's got like the new republic in there i was like oh they're still around <laughs> i would call them more mainstream media now but they are still around <laughs> yeah. um and just like he it was a really interesting like conversation about um the the way censorship works um even before social media which is surprisingly similar to the way it works now during you know with social media um you know the whole like advertiser thing and that elon musk is actually dealing with right now or like um the the struggle that small independent newspapers have with investigative journalism or reporting like straight news is really difficult because you don't have the sources and it's hard to convince people to talk to you <laughs> when your <laughs> readership is not the size of you know, the BBC or the New York Times. So, yeah, it was a fascinating read. Yeah, it's, it's a reminder that um, free speech is always under assault. Um, yeah. Yep. Because we all want to control narratives. Uh, it's a human instinct. We want to curtail things that criticize us or threaten us, and we want to you know, promote that, which, uh, which boosts us up. And a free press is vital to that effect, even if it looks ugly day to day. Uh, it's called what the first pass at history. And it's true. It's pretty rough, uh, in many cases. And I, um, I have to credit Twitter with its ability, especially recently under the headship of Musk to, between that and Substack, promote quality writers who just couldn't get into sort of legacy publications. Um, and it allows sort of um, citizen journalists to write while still holding full-time jobs elsewhere. Because to be employed in journalism is a, is a rare thing. Uh, Aubrey and I are extremely fortunate in that regard. Um, and it, it, 
If you're doing journalism right, you're probably never going to get rich doing it. Uh, so, uh, and it's also, I think, with the Substack model, the ability for people in highly specialized industries to write about those industries is crucial because even having some background in engineering, I cannot write about what's happening uh, in those industries the way another, like a, a 30 year vet could. Uh, who's working at Oshkosh truck um, defense contractor, what have you, maybe he couldn't write anything, but uh, even under a pseudonym. But that's the advantage that the internet gives us that these sites that are devoted to free exchange um, can offer us. So something to be grateful for today, um, even if it is frustrating because most journalists are idiots. And I, ex I accept that. You can call me an idiot anytime. Email me. Um, you're not telling me anything I don't know already. So my guy or my pick for <laughs> this week is Snoopy's Guide to the Writing Life. Uh, and I actually have it on display behind me there, by the little fireplace. And I I've always appreciated Snoopy because it's really just Charles Schultz writing. Um, from his desk about what it is to write full-time. And uh, as an English major, I just need to overanalyze for a minute and say, Snoopy, on top of his doghouse, exposed to the elements with only his typewriter, is is really how it does feel um, to write for you all, where you are, ex you are exposed to everything, <laughs> the good and the bad, and you're just locked in with this piece of uh, cast iron, I suppose, <laughs> maybe steel. I have an IBM uh, wheel writer actually over here. And it's really just a conversation between you and God and you and your conscience a lot of days. Like what, what will fulfill the story's requirement? What is good enough uh, that contributes to the conversation while still getting it out in a timely way that it meets the cycle uh, where pe people will see it. And so there are all sorts of writers who actually have little blurbs uh, in the book commenting on Snoopy's writing. And um, so even if you kind of just scratch things down from time to time, I recommend the book. Uh, you'll definitely recognize yourself um, in there, even if it is a beagle <laughs> who's thinking <laughs> these things. Uh, so article recommendation. Aubrey, you uh, suggest uh, Paul Kenger's, um, our ignorant education secretary, screwed up like the most <laughs> famous Reagan quote of all. Do I have that right? Yes, yeah, I, so it was, it was just a funny piece of news to begin with. Um, the education secretary, um, misquoted Reagan to say that like the the line his line I'm from the government I'm here to help was like a positive thing um rather than the negative thing that Reagan initially intended it to be <laughs> it was like the most I I don't know like that I'm there's a phrase for it and I'm forgetting the phrase I'm trying to write cliches out of my mind a faux so, pas? I mean it is a faux pas but there's something else 
misattribution um, but like he he just took the the last half which is hilarious to me which is the, i'm yeah. from the government i'm here to help <laughs> no. it's like the whole point though is like that that's a bad thing right um, so it it was a fantastic piece of like miss you know misspeaking uh misquoting but then paul's treatment of it was amazing paul knows reagan um very well he's a reagan scholar and it's um yeah his analysis of it was just excellent um so i really appreciated that piece this week yeah i gotta go check that out again it, it's it's definitely worth sitting down and reading because yeah you'll be laughing throughout uh my pick is bruce bauer's napoleon review uh, the latest uh ridley movie and it's um it's a doozy if you're even an amateur historian it will probably kill you uh, <laughs> and i think the worst part is it doesn't even have the the magnetism of like a gladiator where you're just like, oh, you're just in it for the guy. You know, you want to swing the sword for him. You want to protect his back. And this Napoleon is just the most blah, gray dude. He's twice the age um, that Napoleon was at the time. There's all sorts of weird sexual stuff happening that needn't be in there. Um, it's a disappointing movie start to finish. I'm interested to see if the extended version will incorporate more character development, uh, where this movie really tried to push you from set piece moment to uh, domestic volatility moment and back again. Uh, so. I think, I mean, part of the problem is that Ridley chose a really difficult subject. And Bruce makes this point really well in that piece is that Napoleon as a historical character does not have a clean story arc in mm -hmm. any way, shape or form. There's got like five or six story arcs and they don't really arc. Um, <laughs> they kind of just crescendo and then <laughs> St. Helens. And then you're like, wait, what? <laughs> um, Hold on. Yeah, even from like a historical perspective, telling that story is difficult. And Ridley's trying to do it and portray the man and trying to get an understanding of the man. And I don't think anybody's figured out Napoleon. I mean, like, um, he's been, you know, the hero for so many dictators, but at the same time, like, kind of condemns their efforts, like, the way his life <laughs> plays out. It's like, how does this mixed figure even work? um he's iconic but precisely because nobody's figured out like how he worked um <laughs> maybe it all does just come down to short man syndrome i don't know <laughs> maybe i just i just blame the french revolution call me <laughs> call me old <laughs> berkey boy but um i without the french revolution you don't get napoleon you don't get uh europe in flames and i wonder if you then can avoid some of what became world war one sort of the yeah 
yeah. the precedent for that. Uh, but that's that's getting into uh, Harry Turtle Dove. <laughs> <laughs> Hypotheticals are never a good thing in history. <laughs> yes. So we, we won't get into that. Um, but it, definitely worth reading Bruce Bauer if you're considering watching Napoleon. And if you are just looking for something to go check out. I mean, we just haven't had that much good cinema recently. So maybe if you just want to go see some cannons fire off, uh, that, that can be sufficient. Because, uh, I mean... Going to the theater, you want to get that bassy rumble going on with some part of a movie. Uh, so, you know, maybe, maybe. But when a ticket's 20 bucks, that's, that's a hard sell. Full extreme, yeah. Wait a month, it'll be cheaper. Yeah, I think Napoleon, if he got like the HBO uh, Band of Brothers treatment, that might be the way to, to go. That was HBO, right? I think it was. I, I don't know. I don't think I'd watch that. Oh, well, you should. <laughs> it's quite excellent. And then you get the, um, the M1 Grand uh, clip pings all the time because they're just mag dumping all over the place. And that rifle has a beautiful sound to it once it's emptied out. Uh, if you can't tell, the, the audio for a film is very, very <laughs> important to me. I'm a bit of a dork about that. Uh, but I guess, is there anything else for the good of the group, Aubrey? I don't believe so. Well, then it's Friday. We'll get out of here. Thank you very much for listening to the Spectator PM podcast. Uh, keep an eye out. We do have a Cyber Week sale uh, going on on the website. A whole year of our amazing content for, what is it, $19.67 on the dot. We don't believe about we don't believe about inflation here. We're giving you the best deals for a whole week. I mean, I'm not saying be a gog at our generosity, but a gog adjacent. How about that? Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you all very much for listening. We'll catch you next time.